So for the last few weeks, we've been in this Let's Taco About Jesus series. And as I was thinking about and praying about what I wanted to come out here and share with each of you tonight, I began to remember how my evolution of my interpretation or my understanding of Jesus has changed vastly throughout the years. So I remember when I was just a young, probably maybe three, four, five-year-old, I always imagined Jesus as this really sickly person laying in a hospital bed. I have no idea why. I have no idea where that came from. But that was always how I imagined Jesus. And then I got into like the Sunday school days. How many of you guys grew up in a Sunday school? Yes, yes, okay. So if you weren't, let me tell you the, the Jesus, I guess, that is kind of sold to you at this age. It's, it's this Jesus where, um, I don't know how to describe it, where he just makes you feel like, yeah, that's a guy that I could see, you know, walking down my street someday. But also, he's like really kind of an attractive Jesus. He's got like the medium, less, like kind of long, curly brown hair. He's always got the goatee. He's always got the like blue eyes and the white robe on. Have you guys seen this Jesus that they try and sell to you in Sunday school? In reality, the real Jesus, we don't think, looks anything like that. And so that's what I kind of began to picture in my Sunday school days. And then as I got older and I was around, your guys' age, I wasn't in the church as much as I should have been, if I was honest with you. I wasn't really close to Jesus, and my interpretation of him began to be a little bit more manipulated to where when I envisioned him or I imagined him, he was kind of like a judgmental uncle, like a really self-righteous, uppity guy that only came around once in a while, and when he did, you're like, please just leave, okay? I don't know if you guys have uncles like that. I don't, but that's just what I imagined, okay? And so it's changed a lot throughout the years. And now recently, as I look at my interpretation or my understanding of Jesus, I feel like it has changed so drastically. As I've gotten more into his word after I pursued him more and more, I feel like when I imagine Jesus, I picture him as the guy that walked into the temple, saw what they were doing, and just started flipping tables over. Okay? Do you know that story? I love that story. And just once, just once, I want to flip a table over. Okay? Like, I think that that is such a cool power move to do. And so that's the kind of Jesus that I like to imagine that super Super, super powerful Jesus. And I always picture the man who, when faced with constant adversity and challenge, always seemed to come out on top. Not necessarily because he was like the wittiest guy or he had the best sarcasm or the best biting words, but simply because he was just right like all of the time. And whenever I win in an argument, it's never because I'm right. And so when I look at Jesus, I'm like, man, that is so cool how he could just rise above all of that simply because he was all knowing. And I picture a man who's so intelligent and so superior to anyone that was around him that he had to say everything in par or parables or in riddles so that not to blow up the minds of the people around him. And at the same time, while he imagined and all of this power and all of this intelligence and all of this superiority, I also picture the man that said, let the children come to me. I also picture the man that healed 
the blind and the sick and the deaf and the mute. I picture the man who spoke to that Samaritan woman, even though everything in his culture told him not to. The man who washed his disciples' feet and ate meal after meal after meal with the sinful and the shameful. See, I love the understanding that I have Jesus right now because it just shows so much power, so much strength, so much intelligence that is balanced with so much grace and mercy and beauty. And I love that Jesus has shown himself to me in this way. But as I began to think about this, I began to wonder, well, what does the world see Jesus as? How do they interpret him? And so I took to the internet which was a bad idea because it's a terrifying place. And I began to research, okay, what are some pictures of Jesus that are commonly spread out there? And so I've got the first one, and this is the saintly Jesus. This is probably the one that you guys have seen. Have you seen this one before? Okay, very traditional. I don't know, there's like a a aura there or some kind of halo. He's got the weird art thing going on. He's doing something with his hands always, and it symbolizes something, but it kind of looks like the ice in my veins thing, which I learned about last week. Apparently, that's a thing. I don't know. So he seems to be doing that, and I'm just like, that is not Jesus. Like, that is not who I imagine at all. And so then I looked at another picture, and this next one is probably closest to Sunday school Jesus, and so there, yep, yep, there's that one, and that's in like a popular movie now, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense, but again, and there's like the medium length hair, the goatee, like it's just stereotypical Western culture Jesus. And then I found this next one. And this one was interesting because he's kind of like a bro here. You know what I mean? He's like, hey guys, what's up? You wanna come to my place and drink a kombucha? Like, that'd be super chill. But he's still in his white robes, you know? So it's it's respectful, Jesus. But also it's like, I'm just a bro, you know? I'm just a normal guy. So I, I like this one. Now this next one I am very confused and disturbed by. Um, this is Swole Jesus. I am not joking you. This was the top five images on Google search of Jesus. I don't know where this came from, but it seems like it's a mix of Rocky and Jesus, and I'm kind of here for it. I kind of like it, I'll be honest with you. And then the last one is probably the most weird and bizarre to me. I just have no explanation. Who's the baby? Why? Why? I don't understand, like what, why is he holding a baby? Why is his robe only covering certain things? Like I just don't understand why this would come to mind when you are imagining Jesus. And so it begs the question, what do you picture? When you are imagining Jesus, when you're picturing him, when you're thinking about what he means to you as we have been talking about Jesus these last few weeks, you can take that down please for the love. What have you been imagining in your mind? Is it one of those weird ones above? I hope not because none of those are very accurate. Is it maybe the Sunday school Jesus? Is it maybe like Jesus as your big brother? Is it maybe Jesus is super, super powerful? Or is it the judgmental Jesus? 
The one that you don't really know that much about, but when you think about him, you feel like you wouldn't get along because he just wouldn't like you. Is that the Jesus that is coming into your mind just as it did when I was about your guys' age? Well, guys, I want to tell you and I want to take this time tonight that that is not at all who Jesus is. He is not judgmental. He is not hurtful. He is not oddly and weirdly holding a baby. He is none of those things. He is amazing. And I I want to tell a story tonight that shows who Jesus is, that I believe it perfectly encapsulate that might and that power, but also just that sensitivity and that rawness. And so this may be a story that you have heard before. If you've been in the church for a little bit, it may be brand new to you, but it's a story that I absolutely love that Jesus has used within the last couple of months to further reveal himself to me. Now, remember, when we are talking about Jesus, we need to remember that he, during his time here on earth did not live in the United States in the 21st century. If you read the Bible that way, you're going to be very, very confused. But in fact, Jesus lived in a very, very different culture 2,000 years ago in first century Middle East. Okay, so that is where Jesus comes to earth and spends his around 33 years is in this very, very different culture 2,000 years ago. And this is important because it was so, so different from what we have going on today. So there's a couple of things that you need to know before we dive into the story that's going to set us up to further understand maybe a story that you've heard before. So first thing you need to know about first century Middle Eastern culture when Jesus was around was that it was an honor and a shame culture. So what this meant is everything was about either being honorable or shameful. You couldn't be one or the other. You were either in or out, unclean, clean, uh, honorable, or shameful. And so like in the world that we live in today now, they kind of can coexist together, right? You can be friends with somebody who is honorable but has done one or two bad things. Like it doesn't have to be this polarizing one or the other. Well, I guess with canceled culture, it's getting a little bit more confusing. But for the most part, you can be honorable and shameful at the same time. But back then, you were either one or the other, in or out. Everything depended on your honor and everything was done in an attempt to make sure that you would not be considered shameful. Another thing about this culture is that it was a hospitality culture. Now, when you think hospitality, you probably think of like a hotel. You probably think of like when you, people come over to your house and your mom like cleans for like four days in advance. Does your mom do that? I was like a psychopath when my parent, when anyone would come over, it was crazy. And so that was very much their culture back then too. You lived and died by the way that you treated people, whether they were absolute strangers or whether they were your best friends, your neighbors, your family, it was very, very, very big deal on how you would treat people. And so if we have this honor and the shame culture and we had this hospitality culture, that meant that if you bring the two together, dinner parties are a huge deal, okay? Because you got to show off your honor and your prestige while also showing off how hospitable you were, okay? And I say this because our story tonight is going to take place at a dinner table, much, much like this one, but probably a little bit different, again, because it was the first century. And so another thing that we should know about this time period is that there were different I guess, types of citizens. So basically what we were dealing with back then is there was like the 
upper echelon, like the big guys, first class citizens, and then there was basically everybody else. So at the very, very top of the social ladder, we had religious leaders that were men, and they were considered to be very, very honorable, and then you had basically everybody else. And these ones were considered to be the lame, the sick, the poor, the sinful, the shameful. And they were then treated as second class citizens, as below, as nearly basically dirt on the ground. And then you had one more other group that wasn't necessarily shameful, but definitely was not treated like a man in a religious leadership role. And that was the women. Now, women during this time were also considered to be second-class citizens. And it's very, very interesting if you look at the Jewish book of rules or laws called the Mishnah, it says a few things about how women should be looked at and how they should be treated. Because during this time, women were looked upon as being untrustworthy and dangerous. And so it says in this Jewish law book, direct quote, it says, and talk not much with womankind. He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of law. Right? It's offensive. Okay, whatever. It's fine. Okay, but what's really interesting about this law, so you shouldn't talk much with the womankind. If you do, you're bringing evil upon yourself. This law is talking to the men, not about just a normal stranger on the street, but about these men's wives. This is saying, talk not much to your wife. If you do, it can bring evil upon yourself, and you are neglecting the study of the law. This is the world that Jesus is entering into, but thankfully, our Jesus didn't come to fit in with the cultural norms, to fit in with these weird, religious, awful laws. He came to turn that upside-down world right side up again. And so the second part, yes, our story is going to take place at a dinner table, but our story is also going to be about a woman. Now, the last thing that we need to know before we jump into the story, I promise I'm almost done, is that back then, a woman's hair was a big deal, okay? It was a huge, huge deal. In fact, again, in that same Jewish book of law in the Mishnah, it lists some offenses that justify a man divorcing his wife without giving her financial statement, so, settlement. So basically, if your wife does this, you can divorce her without giving her a penny, this is what it says. If she goes out with her hair unbound or spins in the street or speaks with any man that is not her husband, if she does these things, you can divorce her and not give her any money. How many of you ladies went out with your hair unbound today? Yes, all of us, okay? How many of you spun in the street today? I mean, it was raining. Yeah, okay, cool. Love that for you. How many of you spoke to a man that was not your husband? Pretty much all of us, right? I mean, that's just crazy. But back then, if a woman did these things, she could be divorced for it. This is the world that Jesus is entering into. But we need to understand that if something is up with a woman's hair, because when she showed her hair out in public, that was her glory. 
Her hair back then symbolized her glory and it was to show, be shown only to her husband. So we've got this honor-shame culture. We've got this hospitality culture. We've got this culture where there's the first-class citizens and then there's everyone else, the sinful, the shameful, the sick, the lame, the poor, and then there's the woman folk. So this is what we are entering into and this is where our dinner party begins. Now, here's a picture of what a dining table would look like back then. It looks a little bit different from what you might attend on a regular basis. Now, what's the first thing that you notice that is happening here at this dinner table, which is abnormal? The, the beds, right? Isn't that so strange? There are no chairs around this table whatsoever, and this is how they used to eat back then. So imagine trying to eat your steak lounging on your side like that. Like it is nearly impossible, but this is how they would eat. So all of their heads were facing towards the table and their legs and their feet were facing the opposite way. Now this is important because we're gonna come back at later to it. So imagine this. This is where Jesus is about to enter into a dinner party and this is how they used to sit. And now what we need to understand is that there's another group of people that is not shown in this picture. So this is the main group of men. These are the honorable. These are the religious leaders. These are the ones that are having their honorable feast that was such a big deal back then. But then not shown in this picture was a separate group of people. And these were kind of the second-class citizens that we talked about earlier. So if this is the main table that they're sitting at, then there would be a table like over here sitting up against the wall. This is where the sick, the sinful, the poor, they would be invited to come to this honorable dinner to sit up against the wall. They weren't allowed to associate themselves with the honorable, but basically they would get the scraps off of the plate of that dinner feast because that was like their good deed to do for the day. So there's two groups that are eating at this honorable feast. Now let's jump into the scripture. It says in Luke 7, 36, one of the Pharisees, so this is the religious leaders, asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. So this is Jesus, he's getting invited. An older rabbi has invited him to come and to eat dinner. And so Jesus accepts. And then it says in Luke 7, 37, when a certain immoral woman from that city heard that Jesus was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. How many of you guys think you've heard this story now after I say that alabaster jar? Okay, okay. So this is where it's going to start to come together, okay? So this is a woman who's not only a woman, right? Because she's, it, by being a woman, she is automatically a second-class citizen. She's not to be trusted by anyone, especially her husband, but she's not married, and it says that she is immoral. So not only is she a woman, but she is also considered to be sinful and shameful. So she is at the very, very, very bottom of the totem pole. So this is the main character of our story. And when she finds out that Jesus is going to be coming to this feast at this man house, she says, I have to be there. I have to get myself there. And when I come, I'm going to come with the most beautiful alabaster jar, which during that time was worth a lot of money. And it was filled with a perfume that was also worth a lot 
of money. And so she knows that she has to make it to this dinner party so that she can see Jesus and anoint him with this special and this expensive perfume. And so she goes to this dinner with the intention of anointing Jesus. But of course, in this honor, shame culture, she was not supposed to touch Jesus. She was not supposed to associate herself with whatsoever with him. But instead, she was supposed to sit quietly up against the wall, eat her food, say nothing, and leave. That was the expectation for her because she was a sinner, because she was shameful. She was supposed to be quiet, not make any distraction, not make any disturbance, get her food, and be gone with it. But of course, we know that this is not exactly what she does at all. It continues in Luke 7, 38. It says, Then the woman knelt down behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. And so it kind of makes sense now if we know how these men used to lay up against the tables, right? If their heads are pointing this way, their feet are back this way, then this woman who is sitting up against the wall has access to only Jesus' feet. And so it says, She knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting the perfume on them. So these men are sitting this way and as Jesus is trying to be at this honorable dinner table, this woman is is wiping her tears upon his feet, weeping upon them, and then she's wiping those tears off with her hair. Which, what did the hair symbolize on a woman? It was her glory. And so we see this woman, she's making the scene in front of everybody, but she did not care. She had been overlooked and walked over for far too long, treated horribly by everyone around her for far too long, and now she saw Jesus. And she couldn't help but bring her hearts to him. She couldn't control herself so as not to worship him in any way that she knew how, but everybody is watching this scene take place. And for us, we think, wow, that's beautiful. I cannot believe that she was brave enough to do that. I just want to give her a giant hug right now because I must know how she must be feeling. But the men at this party were not thinking that way at all. It says in Luke 7, 39, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. This is his reaction. This is what he's watching go down. And this is what all of the men are witnessing in this public moment as this woman is weeping at Jesus's feet. The men are in shock, in awe, utterly disgusted by this woman's emotion. Now, Jesus in this moment would have been well within his rights to say, stop touching me, get away from me, back up, put yourself together, put your hair back in its place. Everything that you are doing right now is shameful and embarrassing. Get it together, but this is not at all Jesus's reaction because Jesus wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid of her shame. He wasn't afraid of her dirty. He could handle her falling apart on him, raw, unfiltered, unhinged in front of everyone. He can take it. And so this is Jesus's reaction. It says in Luke 7, 40 through 43, 
Then Jesus answered Simon's thoughts. Now I want to back up a little bit because this Simon didn't say anything when this scene is going down. It says in the previous verse that he thought this woman must be crazy. She's a sinner. She should not be touching Jesus. And then it says, then Jesus answered Simon's thoughts. So he literally reads his mind in this moment. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now we need to remember that this is not Jesus's house. This is Simon's house. This is Simon's party. These are his peers that he has invited. And Jesus is a brand new young rabbi. And Jesus is about to put him in his place. He says, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And then Jesus told him this story. You know it's about to go down when he starts telling a story. He says, a man loaded or loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could pay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right. Jesus said. Then it goes on in Luke 7, 44 through 47. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, so he's looking at the woman while saying this to Simon. He's about to rearrange this room. He is about to change the shame of who's shameful and who is honorable. He turns to the woman, looking only at her while speaking to Simon. And he says, look at this woman kneeling her. Don't turn away from her. Look at her. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Said you didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and there are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven shows little shows only little love. He's looking at this woman while he's saying this to Simon, and he's saying, Simon, You have nothing to say when it comes to being honorable. You have treated me with no respect, no honor at all. You have treated this woman so poorly, and he is rearranging this room to say, she is the honorable one here. She is the one who is wiping her tears with her hair. She is the one that has anointed me with an expensive perfume. You have nothing to say on the matter of who is shameful and who is honorable. In this man's own house, Jesus is doing this while the woman is sitting there, continuing to lose it at his feet. Psalm 75, seven says, it is God alone who judges. He decides who will rise and who will fall. In this moment, we watch as this woman goes from the very, very bottom and is brought up and redeemed and restored in front of everybody but Jesus, and we see the honorable and the prideful brought down to the very, very bottom. And then he begins to address the woman. 
In Luke 7, 48 through 49, it says, And Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. No longer are you labeled anymore by your sin. No longer will they call you shameful. No longer will they call you sinful and look down at you. Your sins are forgiven. The men then say to themselves at the table, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins, but he doesn't even acknowledge them. He doesn't even answer that question. He refuses to look away from her in this moment. He wasn't okay with her sitting at that wall any longer. And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are restored. Now walk out of here, leaving behind your shame and your guilt, and walk away in peace. I want to be like this woman. I want to be brave enough to expose my emotions to Jesus in this raw and authentic and unfiltered way. I want to care more about worshiping him and showing him what I'm really thinking and feeling than I care about the other people in the room who are looking at me. I want to care more about making Jesus feel comfortable and welcome than I do about what other people say about me. And most importantly, I want to know that I can go to Jesus exactly as I am, exactly as I am. I don't have to clean myself up. I don't have to make myself look better. I don't have to put myself together and bound back up my hair. I don't have to push my tears back in. I can come to Jesus exactly as I am, whether that is in joy or depression, whether that is in peace or in anger, poise or desperation, he can handle it. He doesn't want you to sit up against that wall anymore in guilt and shame. He wants to bring you up out of it and redeem you and restore you. It says in Psalm 56, 8, I love this verse. It says, you keep track of all of my sorrows. You have collected all of my tears in your bottle and you have recorded each one in your book. I don't know your stories in here tonight, but I can imagine that there's been some tears along the way that there's been some moments inside of you where you don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. You were sad. You were angry. You were scared. And Jesus wants you to know that he can handle it, that he has recorded those tears down every single one shed, and he wants you to know he can handle it. You don't have to sit up against the wall anymore. You don't have to be treated as shameful or as dirty or as sinful. He wants to restore you. He wants to rearrange the room for you. He wants to turn this upside down world of yours right side up again. Sometimes I wonder if we just misunderstand Jesus and his love for us. Sometimes I wonder if we just misinterpret who he is and we just see him as this judgmental God who is far away from us, who doesn't really care what we're going through, who only wants us to be perfect little soldiers, but in reality, he is not far away. He is so, so close. You can reach out to him at any moment. And he's not judgmental. He's not this mean-spirited person. He's not self-righteous. But instead, he comes to the sinful, to the shameful, and he lifts them up, and he generously 
redeems them. But sometimes the shame and the fear of Jesus seeing us unfiltered and unhinged keeps us from being real with him. Keeps us from showing him who we really are. We think Jesus can't see me this way. He would be disgusted, embarrassed. He would judge me for what I am going through. I have to make myself better before I can run to him. I have to get through this situation before I can go to him when really he's just waiting with open arms saying, I want you for you in this moment, in joy, in fear, in depression, in hurt, in all of it. I want you. Whether that's at home, in the privacy of your bedroom where you feel like just can't keep it together anymore, he wants you whether this is in your car on the way to school and you're just thinking about the day ahead of you and you just want to crawl back into bed, He wants you. Whether it's here at 4640 during worship or at camp in just a few weeks, He wants the real, authentic you. You don't have to pretty yourself up. You don't have to try and make yourself better. He wants you so that he can redeem you, forgive you, and send you away in peace, just as he did for that woman. He wants the real you, not the cleaned up, edited version. He can handle it. And so I wanna pray right now to this Jesus, and I wanna talk to him a little bit, and I wanna ask him to reveal himself to you in a new way tonight. So with every head bowed, and every eye closed, let's talk to him right now. Dear Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for being a God that restores and redeems and doesn't care whether I've got it all together or whether I'm shattered into pieces. You are there through it all. And so I just pray that each and every one of these students can just feel you right now. That they can just feel your presence and that they can see you for who you really are. You're not a judgmental God. You're not a self-righteous God, but you are merciful and powerful. Reveal yourself to them right now. And as they come before you boldly and show you who they really are, Jesus, I just ask that you will do the same for them as well. You will just bring them peace and comfort that surpasses all understanding and that in their darkest moments, when they're falling apart, when they're hurting Jesus, that they can know exactly who to turn to. You can take it. We love you so much. And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the 4640 Student Center Podcast. For more information on what's happening in 4640, you can check us out on social media and at our website, 4640gj.com. Service times are Tuesday and Wednesday nights. Hope to see you there.